This past December, the world met in Paris to discuss the future of our planet. For one week, 194 nations gathered to address emissions and global warming. Was the conference successful and what was agreed on? Today, we have an in-depth recap for you. COP21, results from the Conference on Climate Change. Our focus here today on an organic conversation. Your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. COP21, or COP21, the Conference on Climate Change. We did a show in December, right before the conference, and so often in media, you don't get the follow-up of what happened. And that's our topic. We will give you exactly that, a detailed recap from somebody who actually attended the conference and spent years and months planning for it. Yeah, we have Ken Berlin back on. Ken Berlin is the president and the CEO of the Climate Reality Project. And our conversation with him back in November was such an insightful and hopeful one about what this conference was hoping to address, which is an international climate agreement. And so there was a lot of press about it leading up to the fact. And I agree with you, Helga. I do tend to find that the post-event wrap-up of these kinds of things tends to be lower priority in the media than the lead-up. But this is a very important topic. And um, I'm really looking forward to hearing his report on how successful it was. Yeah, the media always wants the excitement or the unknown or the event. And then, you know, not so much what actually came out of it. Just like, you know, a year or a couple of years after the tsunami that hit Indonesia, uh, how are people doing? How is Indonesia recovering? What have we learned and what has changed? The whole story is really missing in media. It's the short announcement so often. And you can find it if you if you research it on the internet, but there's never a complete picture really of before, during and after. So it's important, especially it's our generation that is witnessing the consequences of our lives and the lives of our parents and maybe their parents, just a couple of generations. And all countries for this conference were present, all countries on this planet. So it is a story that is important to be told ongoingly before, during, and after the conference, and we will learn all about it. COP21, results from the Conference on Climate Change. That's our focus here in this hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. All that and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned.
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. COP21, Climate Agreement, an international call to action. Indeed, we'll hear all about what the conference in Paris last December brought forth from the person we had on the show a few weeks just before the conference, Ken Berlin, the president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project, Al Gore's organization. Ken is joining us today from New York City. Ken, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you. Thank you so much again for making the time again, because we had you on the show just a couple of weeks before the conference in Paris this past December. And um, you, you were just getting ready, exciting anticipation of the conference you were preparing. So it was a very hopeful conversation stating that you believed this would be a game changer. This would be the conf the conference that would finally get all nations in the world to agree to take some action on climate change and kind of set the, the base level to then build upon. I want to clarify, did actually all countries show up that were supposed to come? The, the numbers, we have 196 countries on this planet. How many, how many attended? I believe that virtually every country attended, and, and the issue was, would all countries make commitments uh, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions? And I believe that at least 185 of the countries did so as of a week or two ago, and I don't know if additional countries did. So 185 countries is virtually all the countries in the world have now made commitments to reduce their uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so you would consider this a success then? I mean, when we spoke to you, you said this is the first opportunity where we've really been poised to come up with a universal climate agreement. And would you say that that is what was accomplished at the conference? Yes, I think that is what accomplished. What happened at the conference is, is we have now put in place a structure that gives us a chance to, to, to address climate change and keep global warming below two degrees um, centigrade. And the goal was set in these negotiations to try and keep it below one and a half degrees centigrade. Wow. And the reason that that structure really works is that countries have made, about, as I said, 185 countries have made commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Those commitments get enough reduction so that essentially we should be able to keep greenhouse gas temperature increases to about between 2.7 and 3 degrees centigrade. That's not adequate, and that doesn't work. But the structure that's set up is that every five years, the countries will have to review and strengthen their commitments. That, and we think that if they do that, we can still keep greenhouse gas emissions below two degrees centigrade and, and, and get them down towards, it'll be harder, but get them down towards the one and a half degree level. We're all going to have to work to make sure that happens, but we have a structure that enables that to occur. So when when you talk about a degree or two degrees or three degrees, it seems it seems in a way ridiculously low, and yet it is making all the difference, right? A three yes, degree I mean, commitment. What what would that translate to into action per each country? If you just have a few examples, how much effort it actually is to 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 bring you know increase in temperature down three degrees. Yeah, okay. We've, of course, the problem is, is we have a massive base of fossil, uh, fossil fuel energy plants and transportation systems that use fossil fuels. So it's a major task to change that. In the United States, our commitment was to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 
26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by uh, 2025. So that's a, so that's that's a significant uh, reduction. The European Union has an even greater reduction. I think they're not sure whether it was 30 or 40 percent below 1990 level, uh, which is much more significant. China has has not had as significant a reduction. Uh, in its actual emissions, but it has committed to peaking its emissions uh, before 2030, and it is committed to installing, it looks like, far more renewable energy than even the United States is doing. So it's also wow. getting itself on the right path. Mm-hmm. So this is a major, major effort by countries involved to get to 25% level. Sure. We need to do, and what's happening is that renewable energy is becoming so cost competitive that we think that every year countries will be able to strengthen their commitments uh, and will certainly do so every five years. And that means that we do have a chance to uh, get our emission reductions strong enough so that we can keep global warming below two degrees centigrade. Two degrees seems like a low number, but we are now at about a one degree increase. And I think everybody knows and sees the tremendous problems we're already getting from global warming from even a one degree and this is centigrade increase in uh, worldwide temperatures. Sure, yeah, and you had expressed that hope before in, in, in our last interview that it's not just what is being committed to, but that there is this ongoing effort now from some kind of baseline that countries are committing to as well. This is not a one-time goal. This is now the work starting for all of us. That's Is that That's correct. fair recap? Yeah. Well, you touched yeah. on something that I found to be very interesting when you were talking about what China had brought to the table. And that's what I want to ask you, because there were so many countries in attendance at this conference. Everybody you had said prior to this conference were asked to submit something. They were going to submit what they were willing to do in order to reduce emissions. So what stood out from you about what the countries brought to the table? Well, two things stood out. One is that they brought enough commitments to begin to significantly slow down the increase in uh, greenhouse gas emissions. We were talking about possibly getting a five or seven degree or even more increase in greenhouse gas emissions. So if we can hold it to 2.7 to 3 degrees, that's obviously an improvement. Now, 2.7 or 3 degrees would still be catastrophic. That's not enough. But it is a significant amount of progress. And again, it puts us in a position where we can strengthen those commitments uh, enough so that there still will not be, there'll still be a small enough amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere so that we won't get above the two degree centigrade. When I say a small enough amount, it's a massive amount of greenhouse gases, but it's not the amount that's needed or that would result in mm-hmm. an increase of more than two degrees centigrade. So be, beyond the numbers, this was a gathering of world communities that that no other conference has ever been able to achieve. I really think in my life, I've never heard of any place that has able been able to gather all countries of this world under one topic. Um, on, on an emotional level, being with that many different ethnicities and people of race and color and shape and form, what was the most moving thing or a couple of stories that you experienced doing those 10 days or that week in Paris that, that made it really a, a, a kind of a world tribe for you? Well, the most moving thing was the general feeling of optimism, really by, every, by almost everyone there, that we would be able to put this agreement together. You know, some of these negotiations in the past have really become mired down in controversy and fighting. That really, to a remarkable degree, did not happen there. Everybody around the world seemed to work together 
to uh, to bring about this agreement. I mean, there are obviously some people who thought that, you know, we should have gone further in this and they weren't uh, completely happy with it. But nevertheless, people from all countries around the world uh, worked together. The environmental justice people who were there, again, didn't get everything they wanted because we're not we don't have an agreement that keeps things at one and a half degrees centigrade, but we did get a very strong long-term commitment that was really put in place uh, because of the work of small island nations like the Marshall Islands. They actually played a very significant role here in convincing the world that they had a moral obligation to agree to strong long-term goals. And I think that was probably the most moving thing in the uh, negotiations for me. So can you share with us what some of these agreements are? I mean, specifically, what have certain countries proposed they will do or committed that they will do in order to keep greenhouse gas emissions lower? Well, there are usually a couple of parts of every country's commitments. You know, the first thing people do is talk about what they're doing with their energy generation system. Mm -hmm. Again, we're uh, we're talking about major reductions in the United States. Our clean coal plan will reduce carbon emissions from electric generating plants by 30% by 2030. And I think we'll actually do much better than that um, between uh, now and then. There's also an element in this of um, what people are going to do about their transportation system, how much they will try and reduce their emissions from gas, you know, from gas and from gas and automobiles um, and in other vehicles. There's an element of forestry and agriculture in this. Uh, Countries are committing to either reduce depending on the country, reduce their deforestation or increase reforestation, which captures more uh, greenhouse gases. People are talking about using better agricultural methods uh, that also reduce greenhouse gases. So, you know, some of these commitments are fairly long and complex. But the key thing about most of them is they try and address all the key areas that need to be addressed. Uh, There's also in the agreement provisions on transparency about what countries have to report. And, you know, they will give us the basis. Those still need to be worked on. But they're a good starting point, again, for enabling everyone to understand what the countries are doing. And, therefore, if they're not doing what they should be doing, put pressure on them to do better. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And our topic in this hour is COP21 or COP21, the climate agreement that was forged in Paris, an international call to action. And we are speaking with Ken Berlin. There's nobody better to give us an update of what happened in Paris. The president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project, Washington, D.C., Al Gore's organization, that Ken has been leading for many years and prepared well for this conference. Ken, you're bringing up two points for me. Uh, Soil carbon sequestration is a huge topic. Agriculture, of course, a big contributor, but even more so, soil in itself is a gigantic carbon sink. So while all countries need to reduce their emissions, clearly, soil seems to be a key factor if we really want to come back to levels that don't impact our overall weather systems and our overall uh, global temperature. How much was soil and agricultural practices really a focus of all nations? I don't think it was. Well, I think it was in their individual INDCs, a number of nations really do pay attention to that. I think in the negotiations, it was not as major a topic as I would have liked, but that doesn't prevent countries from in their, when I say INDCs, I'm sorry, their individual country commitments. In their country commitments, 
uh, uh, countries that address that. And again, that's an issue that we can continue to bring up. And when countries didn't do it or they did it in- inadequately, or will we develop better techniques, uh, we can work on those uh, between now and the next review period in five years. And then how will each country be held accountable? You touched on that, but is there a body that will actually monitor progress like the United Nations or is something that formal not yet quite in place? Um, well, I think the, I think the uh, uh, parties to the agreement will monitor what the other parties are doing. They're still working on the details on it to enable them to really understand what's going on. So people trying to come up with protocols, that'll be a very big topic in the next round of negotiations in Mexico. Uh, next year, which is the next COP, COP22. And again, COP means Conference of the Parties. So that will be an issue uh, going forward. And, you know, again, a lot of this is going to be, I think what's going to be necessary for the environmental community is to work at this on two levels. One is we all have to work, we, or we should work in, in each key country around the world to make sure that the country does what it's supposed to do. The Climate Reality Project has branch offices in nine key countries around the world, and we'll be working in those countries to make sure that the emission reduction commitments made by countries are first implemented. We'll then monitor them, and then in, in three or four years, we'll start working on strengthening them. Um, and I think a lot of the environmental community and civil society uh, will work to do that. And then in the international meetings that, that, are, that are held, you know, we will try and rely on public pressure on countries to make sure they do the right thing. There's no, there are no penalties in a sense in this agreement for not complying. So it's a question of uh, everyone working hard to make sure that the countries do this on their own. And in the long run, that's the best approach because we need each country internally to, to commit to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions properly. Yeah, we want to talk about the public role in this conversation in, in a minute. We'll take a quick break, but please stay on the phone. Again, that's Ken Berlin, the president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project. That's climaterealityproject.org, who is joining us today from New York, even though the Climate Reality Project is actually based in Washington, D.C., to work directly with lawmakers and our legislative and executive branches there. COP, COP21, Climate Agreement, an international call to action here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be right back with so much more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Our focus in this hour is COP21, Climate Agreement, an international call to action, a recap of the results from the climate conference in Paris past December. So Ken, in the first part of the interview, you talked about what the country is committed to doing in order to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And you were also talking just before we went to break about how each country is going to be held accountable to these commitments that they've made. And I recall you said something about you. Did you say that the Climate Reality Project has offices in nine countries where people are staying in touch with what commitments each country has made? Yes, we do, and, and other and other environmental groups in the United States also have offices outside the U.S. And in each of these countries, we're structured in a way where our offices are all run by uh, nationals of the country that we're located in, because we think that has the biggest impact. Our office is still pretty small, but but we've embedded them in larger organizations, and we're trying to work on coalitions in those countries to really make sure the countries have the right laws, regulations, and regulations and directives in place to implement the commitments they've made in Paris. So what can the public do to help hold these countries accountable? How can we ensure that these commitments they've made, which, you know, I've heard you say this is a really great step forward. Of course, it could have been stronger, but because there is an agreement to come back, review, evaluate, and strengthen the agreement every five years, this has been a really, really positive step, um, the things that were accomplished this past December. But what can the public do in order to keep them accountable and keep raising the stakes to do something even more progressive the next time the Conference of the Parties meet? Well, I think we're off to a good start in a lot of the world. And in the uh, it, at Paris, 150 world leaders showed up, and all and made speeches about climate change. There wasn't a single word of denial about climate change in any of those speeches. You know, so the deniers that are still exist in the United States are becoming, as President Obama said in his uh, State of the Union, a very very lonely uh, group of people with no support outside the United States and very little real support in the public here in the United States. Also. Nevertheless, the transition to a clean energy economy is difficult. It requires replacing an existing economic system. There will be resistance to that part of it um, around the world. So essentially what people have to do is become active in this issue and politically active. They have to tell in every country their leaders that they want action, they want action on climate change, and that they will take appropriate political action if if their leaders don't do that. So again, we'll be trying, like a lot of groups, to organize people to get that message across to government leaders uh, around the world. So again, what people can do and need to do everywhere is take political action. And of course, on a personal level, what they need to do is be as energy efficient as they can in their in their lives. They don't have to stop living a really normal life as they've as they've done it. They should just do it as efficiently as possible. Because if we can transition to all clean energy. We can, in fact, you know, still maintain uh, the level of uh, the, the living standard that we have or that people aspire to around the world. Well, and one thing that I really like about what you said is people, in addition to continuing to be efficient, <laughs> is to take progressive political action. Right there, progressive political action. It is a very big statement that I think for a lot of people, 
a refresher on how to do that goes really far because we talk about that with whatever it might be. If you're trying to advocate for GMO labeling, if you're trying to advocate for better standards and um, animal husbandry practices, whatever it happens to be. And here we're talking about climate change and getting our leaders to continue to make decisions that are going to keep global emissions below a certain point. So what is this appropriate political action? Writing your representatives? Is it showing up for events and rallies? What would you like, in an ideal world, what would you like to see people doing? Well, leaders need to believe that their constituents want action, they demand action, and they will ultimately vote against them or not support them if they don't take that action. So what people need to do is take the steps that let political leaders know that they are going to be politically active on this issue. They need to, they can write their legislators and tell them that. They can even better go meet with their legislators. They can tell their legislators that they're going to vote. Uh, And then the most important thing is they need to go out and vote. And if they do that, people will pick that up in polls and things like that. We'll really find out uh, what people are doing. So our goal with the Climate Reality Project, for example, is to create more and more climate political activists, people who vote on climate and let their uh, representatives know that they are voting uh, on climate and they will vote against someone who doesn't support strong action on climate and they will, and they will support people who do support cl- strong action to address climate change. And it seems like the the industry has or is beginning to understand that working against the planet is the most expensive thing they could be doing. We see it everywhere from green businesses to American supermarkets that now really fine tune data on humidity and temperature to to optimize energy use because energy is expensive and a part of doing business. It seems like that is really a topic that is now on pretty much everyone's mind. From whatever angle people look at this, whether it's a climate concern or uh, just doing you know, more profitable business by saving energy and by saving costs, uh, what's the role of the Climate Reality Project to, to educate industry and individuals on, on positive change in the right direction? Well, we work very hard to uh, speak to and sit down with business groups, uh, trying to get people to go speak to business groups who have um, expertise in this area. You know, one of the arguments that we make that you can make to a business group is that, you know, a great, indus- great industries adapt to the future. Great companies adapt to the future. The future we're looking at here is going to be a future of businesses that work on renewable energy, not on fossil fuel energy that in the relatively near term, in the next few years, um, or maybe a little bit longer, renewable energy is cheaper, cleaner, and more reliable than fossil fuel-based energy, and companies that utilize that will have Mm -hmm. more uh, competitive products and better products, so that they will be um, changing in the way they need to remain a a great company. So we try and get that message uh, across... uh, to business uh, in many, many different ways. And many businesses in the United States are, of course, getting that and beginning to understand that and beginning to make changes that, you know, enable them to utilize the industries of the future and not the industries of the past. Yeah, and we are a, a benefit corporation. So, you know, we get audited as a as a media company, who we work with and what packaging we use if, if we were a 
product producing companies. So there, there are lots of really organized initiatives now in the business world where environmental stewardship or stewardship in general is being recognized and rewarded. Are you working with those groups directly or, or is that one of the things or programs in the future? We don't we, well. We don't we don't necessarily work directly on those kinds of awards, but we do you know instead try and speak to uh, businesses and make our you know and make our arguments to those businesses and I, and so we're we, we've not been giving any awards ourselves yet. We might think about that in sure. the future. And so you, you're saying one last question on the timing. The next really official climate agreement review is in five years, and yet COP twenty one. Last year, this year is COP22. It is an annual event. What would COP22 be looking like? Will that be as big or is this every five-year event much, much bigger? And this is more um, this year a, a gathering of delegates to look at notes and see how much countries were actually able to implement in, in just 12 months. Yeah, I mean, there are still a number of issues that are going to be reviewed in COP22 that have been left open after COP21, issues relating to the protocols you need to, to uh, produce information uh -huh. on, uh, on your emissions. There are issues on finance that are still being reviewed. So every COP is important, but obviously a COP like the last one that led to a major worldwide agreement is a much, much bigger event than, you know, than these follow-up meetings sure. that are really working on more technical issues. So we'll have these for three or four years. I'm sure they'll all be important. And then the big cop that, uh, in which people will uh, hopefully shrink their commitments will be five years from now. Seems like you never get a breather, really. <laughs> <laughs> and when we talked no. to you, just when we talked to you right before we went live on the air, you are in the midst of quite a lot of traveling. You're going to be visiting countries all over the world. And training and people. Training, yes, training and uh, going to the TED conference and also fundraising. Can you tell us about how are you guys able to do what you do and how could you use support? Well, you know, like every organization, um, we uh, need financial support in order to do the work we do. For example, I'm traveling in the next few weeks to, uh, to the Philippines and then to China to do three-day trainings of what we call our climate leaders. We, create, we train activists in these countries. The trainings in both of those countries will probably be about uh, 800 to 1,000 people each. Um, so we'll create a major core of activists uh, in, those, in those countries. Uh, meanwhile, working. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of meetings on my, I'm going to China twice where I'm meeting with people in the business community in China, actually, to talk about uh, issues and to talk about uh, compliance with uh, climate change laws and environmental laws and to build understanding of the Chinese business community about what's going on in climate change. And we've got, you know, we've, I'm meeting with our branch offices, which we have to run. So, um, you know, any support we can get uh, would obviously be deeply appreciate it. And I think the money spent would be well spent. Uh, people can always go to our website, climaterealityproject.org, uh, if they you know, would like to support us uh, in some way. And if they don't want to give money, if they'd like to support us by action or by working with us, that would be terrific also. And just what would a training like this one look like? You are actually doing the training yourself, right? Yes, actually, in the trainings, Al Gore, our chairman, actually speaks for eight hours during the three days. He gives a very, he really is training people in how to talk about climate change. I do the opening keynote on what our plans are, what our goals are, and how we're working. Then we bring local experts on different topics depending on 
you know, what we're trying to accomplish uh, in each of the trainings that we're working on. Um, and we have terrific speakers and terrific panels on. And I think people come out of these trainings tremendously energized to work on uh, climate change. Amazing. Thank you, Ken Berlin, the president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project, who made time for us again after a show we did before the conference on climate change in Paris last December, or I think the show was in November, but you were just getting ready. Thank you so much for all your work for delivering a rather very hopeful message. We are at least seems like on the right track, lots of things to still figure out of how to monitor and how to hold countries accountable. But the overall energy feels like everyone is committed and nobody's denying climate change anymore. And that is already a huge step forward and the result of all your work. So thank you again for joining us in this hour here on Inorganic Conversation on COP21 results from the Conference on Climate Change uh, International Call to Action. Thank you, Ken, for all your work. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure to have you. Safe travels. Thanks. I, I so enjoy speaking with him. I feel much closer to this movement, hearing it through his experience and all of the things that he's doing to make this a more tangible solution. Well, there's somebody full-time with Al Gore, our former vice president, dedicated single-focusedly on this topic. That is a big relief because, you know, we all do our part, whatever it is, well-being, green living. But, yeah, global climate change, global climate change, not just in the U.S., is a topic that needs to be spearheaded, really, and held by just a few leaders to drive the conversation forward. And he's clearly doing that. So that's amazing. And I'm encouraged to hear that he's, you know, he said that China came up with some really progressive commitments. And then you have small islands that are coming and just touching your hearts with what they're saying their role in this is to everybody is on board. Well, in island states already, the, the salt water intruding on any freshwater reserves that they might have, you know, there are lots of island states that are already heavily impacted, in fact, uh, about seawater, uh, from seawater rising. So it's not, you know, just a hurricane, just quote unquote, a hurricane somewhere on this planet. It is really an international crisis and problem. And we are now at the table and figuring it out. So, hopeful messages from Ken Berlin from the Climate Reality Project. That's climaterealityproject.org. The Climate Change Conference in Paris update here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we're staying with one of the factors of what will bring the global climate or temperature down again, which is soil carbon sequestration, sustainable agriculture, healthy vegetables, All that is coming up next. What's in season? The update from the produce dock of what you will find on the shelves and on your plate hopefully soon. Stay tuned for more. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. 
At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. From the World Climate Conference, and hopefully a focus on sustainable agriculture in the next years, even more so. Here's the update from the produce doc. And actually, this time, not from the produce doc. But regardless, here is what's in season. And with us now, hopefully, is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic, Mr. Earl Herrick. Earl, are you there somewhere? Hello, Helga. Hey, Sita. Hi there. Welcome to the show. <laughs> yes. I yeah, love uh, when you're calling in from somewhere in the world. It's like, where in the world is Earl Herrick? Exactly, because this time it's not from San Francisco, actually. Where are you on the road? Yeah, I, I went down south a little bit to Monterey. Uh, actually, just a little sh uh, a little further south and into uh, Pacific Grove to this yearly conference called the Ecofarm Conference, which I know both of you are quite familiar. We are. We are. We, you know, I think we talk a little bit about Ecofarm every year because it's been such, it's been so instrumental in growing a lot of sustainable agriculture across the country and beyond. You know, it's it's a big deal, uh, at least for almost anybody on the West Coast. This is the the yearly conference that you want to go to. It's in its 36th year. Uh, over a thousand people attend. It's a Wednesday through Saturday, and there's a real converging of people from all over the globe. And it's kind of a a, a meeting of the tribes, if you will. So uh, it's it's a, always in January third week or so every year. Yeah. How was it this time around? Um, you well, you went again. You always go. Yeah, we we actually brought about twenty four uh, folks down from Earls over a period of a couple of days, and we're able to get together. And, and well, first of all, the weather was great. We uh, there were a couple of days that were kind of normal winter, but we also had uh, in the mid sixties. So it's we've had a kind of a cold spell up in the Bay Area. Nice. So in that sense, it was fantastic. You're allowed. You're able to be out and and roam around. And and the grounds here are just absolutely spectacular. We're about a half mile from from the ocean, and one of the one of the things you must ensure that you do is get down to the ocean and just walk around. It's it's a beautiful area just north of Pebble Beach for those golfers in the audience. Well, you know, what it is, we're a major sponsor, and it's a conference that holds over 50 workshops and seminars and discussion groups. It's really the TET conference of, of sustainable agriculture, right? That's what it feels like. Maybe a little bit more hands-on as well, TET. You know, yeah. yeah, the subjects are incredibly varied, and you're right. There's, yeah, I would say you're right, and with more more hands-on. Some some of the discussion groups are are ranging from saving farmlands to holistic grazing and posture uh, pasture management, all the way to badass 
uh, tractor mechanics 101, <laughs> how to keep your old tractor in the field, and virtually everything else you can think of, whether you're, if you're tangent to the industry, in the organic industry, whether you're a, a CFO, uh, you're an investment capitalist, you're a fledgling grower, you're, you know, whatever, there is something here for you with so many seminars spread over those four days. For us, bringing all these people down, it is, a, it is a great time to be able to not only expose the people that, that come down with me, which are my buyers and sellers, but also introduce, uh, I always introduce a, uh, about half a dozen new people that we've hired within the last year or two to this group and to the industry. And it can be, and, you, and it is, an incredibly eye-opening situation to be in the midst of your industry. It's, it's, we, we've experienced almost everybody that comes back is flushed with enthusiasm and a different context and scope of what they're involved in. So it's more than just coming down and having a great time and, and, and connecting with industry people, but it's also about bonding together as a group of people and getting away from uh, the, the warehouse and, and the normal interactings of business and letting your hair down a bit. Uh, get to know each other even more, and, and all that is a very strengthening situation. Well, there are not many conferences where you get the entire bandwidth of what you just explained. There are policymakers, there are teachers, there are agriculturalists, there are buyers and sellers and farm equipment folks, mm -hmm. uh, governance, really everyone over the course of those five, six, four, five days comes to Monterey once a year, now 36 years, almost 40 years in the making. It has really shaped, if not kind of completely uh, led the path in a way, created the path for the entire organic and sustainable agriculture movement in California. And since it's such a breadbasket really for the country for, for that long, for over um, for, for 36 years now, uh, for over three decades. And it, I, I do think it's a life-changing event because it makes you realize your place in the overall system. I've had the pleasure to serve on the board of EcoFarm, and that's EcoFarm, eco-farm.org, the website for seven years or so. And because of this bandwidth, you realize your place, in this case you, Earl, as a produce buyer and your team, but you know how it affects the policymaker, you know how it affects the farmer and the teacher and the the beginning agriculturalist and the veteran agriculturalist and the awards that have been given out. It is really a part of life, right? You know, it really is, and, and it's grown as the industry has grown. And your perspective of it, where you do see, you you have the opportunity to be a change agent. Mm -hmm. That's an that's what is in fact you're you're part of, and it gives me a great gives me and the rest of our team and and everybody here a chance to interface with each other. There are people that this is the only time of year I get to see. <laughs> yeah, oh, true. Really? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. so true. Yeah, well, and I mean they're they're up in Seattle or they're down in Tucson or they're down in Mexico, and definitely we'll go down and visit those folks. But we don't do that every year. So to be able to, and for example, there's an old friend of mine, David Posner, with the company Awesome Organics. I've known him for 30 years, and he's only in Santa Cruz, but he travels all around the world. Anytime I'm, 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 I'm near him, I'll give him a buzz, but he's out of town. So this is the one time I can corral him, sit down, have a beer, talk business, uh, introduce him to a couple more people that I'm working with, and, and he do the same, and so we we get down to real business, do some analysis if we want to, 
um, talk about crop planning, introduce new people, and we really do a lot of planning. And then after we do all that, we let our hair down at the end of the night, um, share some good times, and then do it all again the next day. Well, you're on the air, so we don't want to get into that too much. But it is really true that farmers are not known to spend eight weeks a year in Europe, you know, visiting Italy. Uh, they are on the found farm, and they're bound to the farm. And because of uh, daily occurrences on the farm, really maybe only over the Christmas holidays when it's time to, uh, you know, fix your equipment and buy new seeds and lay out the next farming year, farmers do not travel that much. And so... Having farmers at the conference, it's, it is for many, I believe, um, at a time where you know for those five days you will see everyone again. And that's really beautiful. That's EcoFarm. Sita. Well, I wanted to comment on what Earl was saying about these people who are coming in. And, and there are an increasing number of young people coming to EcoFarm. And part of that is because of the leadership skills. What's happening with this um meeting of some of the industry veterans, the people who have really contributed to the shape of the organic movement, and the people who are carrying on that legacy are meeting in the same place at the same time. And so I think that that's something certainly, I mean, at Earl, at some point when you went to your first eco farm, you were you were a young one, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah. now you're coming with 24 of your team members, and they're all at an opportunity to become better leaders, and it's because of a consistent commitment to understanding the industry better from other people who are doing interesting and innovative things all over the country and beyond. Yes. You know, one of the things we do ask our folks to do as they return to work is to write an article uh, about their experience, uh, their, their, their opinions and what they're gathering, and then we place them on our website. So by all means, go to our website, check them out. You'll get a little more input from another perspective of what it's like to attend uh, the EcoFarm conference. How many young farmers are you seeing? Because that's we know that in this decade, about half of all agriculturalists, uh, we have about 2 million farmers left in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, 1 million will reach retirement age, hopefully not retire, because we could not replace those quickly enough. But how many young farmers are you seeing, and what's the energy like? Well, One is it's it's hard to count, you know exactly. I think there may be a listing in in the pamphlet, mm -hmm. uh, but for me, there's an incredible amount of young people that that I see. Whether or not they're all farmers is hard to tell. I, I'm not looking at everybody's fingernails yet, <laughs> though. Um, but the and so the energy is is incredible because I think people come with high expectation. Uh, whether they're returnees or whether it's uh, people that they've talked to that have prepped them or whether it's by random, but they come, people come here with high expectation. I think they pretty much get met. Mm -hmm. uh, there is so much to do. And for myself, just walking around the grounds and we all have name tags and be able to see another name tag coming to me that they work for a company that maybe I do do business with or I've heard about. And there's an easy icebreaker there. And you get into all kinds of conversations. You know, what is it sure. like farming in, in Wisconsin? You know, what are your challenges? What are your supply needs? So there's lots of stuff to talk about. And I walk out of here every year with a couple major things that happen. And we really look forward to it. Yeah. Well, I don't want to 
uh, talk about your age, but I do want to talk about your experience. You are a veteran in the industry, and we are blessed to have you as a weekly voice on this show to get your perspective from, you know, from the dock, and in this case, from EcoFarm, uh, where the movement is standing and, and what, what's going on in sustainable agriculture. So wonderful for that update. Thank you so much. Um, Absolutely. That website of yours is earlsorganic.com. And EcoFarm is eco-farm.org. Check out both of those amazing resources. Yeah. Earl, no produce, but we are eager to hear about produce next week. Yeah. Um, I hope you enjoyed your time down in Monterey at Asilomar for EcoFarm, and um, we'll have you back next week. Looking forward to it. Fan- uh, talk to you next week. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Thanks so Thanks, much. Thanks, Earl. Talk to you. Bye. Wow, yes, EcoFarm. It's amazing that those gatherings of hundreds or thousands of people, or actually with the COP21, tens of thousands of people for a common cause, how wonderful for for humanity to meet and for how inspired people are getting for the year to do their work and to see, you know, from, from all walks of life and from all levels, whether that's EcoFarm in the farming movement or COP21 in this case the update from Ken Berlin and Paris to be charged up again because it matters, all this matters. And when humans come together under a common cause, it's just the energies. It's life-changing, beautiful. Well, another thread for me between these two things is that idea of leadership. I think what happened at Paris and what continues to happen, just as Ken said, with his teams that are all over the world is they're helping these countries stay accountable to their commitments, and that takes a great deal of leadership. And so we owe a great deal of thanks to the people who came before us to make sure that we are living in a healthier planet um, every day. Yes. Yeah. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Monterey and in Paris doesn't. Oh Lucky gosh. us. <laughs> and that's oh an Lord. organic conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back with another episode next week. See you soon. Bye. <laughs> Bye. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash An Organic Conversation. Thank you for your contribution. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1988. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, 
go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helber and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.